I can't stand coffee, but I'm freezing. So I'm going to be holding this most of the day because I ain't got, I got a lot of body fat on me. So I'm going to be up here <laughs> holding this thing down. Um, Zoe, where you at, girl? Zoe, I heard, was baptized this past week. Is that right? Yeah, you were. You know what? Why don't you stay up here all service because you look so, like, you just fit up here, right? No, no, turn around and face the crowd, all right? They want to see it. Here's a book for you, all right? We're so excited and encouraged for you to be part of the family. All right. Jordan, come on up too, I guess. <laughs> come here, son. My man. My man. Jordan was baptized last night at the men's retreat. All right. That's for you. Yep. We just got back from men's retreat, and you men that were there, how was it? Yep. You know, there, there's, there's nothing more motivating to a church body than men that get their life together. Amen? When men can realize and, and understand their role in the church and what they can do to accomplish and achieve that and to, and to blaze a trail, incredible things can happen in a church. And the fatherhood and the parenting and the, and the overall leadership, um, this was a great retreat for these men to, to come back to and commit to something different. And it's cool to see men of all ages from our, our oldest members in our church to our youngest believers, that kids were there for the first time, to watch them listen and absorb all this stuff but come back fired up to just change um, an entire community. So I'm always excited to go to those retreats, um, and I'm just excited to see what's going to happen because of that. We have a, a couple of announcements. If you guys want to pull out your guys' bulletin, um, there's a card in there. We have, an, uh, we have an event coming up actually this upcoming Saturday. So Mother's Day is next weekend, and we have a brunch that we are planning on hosting um, on Saturday from 10 to noon, I believe. Yep, 10 to noon. And, you know, if you, if you have a mom, you all have a mom to some extent, you know, um, if your mom's around, if you uh, are a mom, if you have a mother figure in your life, you know, this is the place to come. It's going to be an awesome opportunity just to be able to come and fellowship together and just to have a, a nice uh, event. I don't know what necessarily is going to be served, but I know there will be food there. I also know that there's going to be like a little kid's corner so the kids will be watched for the little ones. Um, so moms, just come Come take a break, you know, come and enjoy the day. Uh, like I say, with every time I get up here and we talk about an event, I give you guys a card. Take this stuff, write it down, and give this to somebody who needs it. Find somebody this week, find a mom or a mother figure that has a relationship with you and hand this off to them and say, you know, I just was really thinking about you this week and I just really wanted to invite you out to this. And it'd be cool to see what kind of people we can bring into the church to see um, just the way that we choose to love up on our moms and, and, and our women and, uh, and hopefully an opportunity for them to come visit with us next Sunday. So take that down and, uh, and hold on to it. So my name's Jake. I'm excited that you guys are here today. I'm excited that it's warm outside. Um, if you guys haven't noticed the cold weather, I think it's finally starting to, to fizzle out. Um, I'm not excited that I'm freezing up here, though. But I know that a lot of people in here are very comfortable. Um, I'm, just, I'm just a scrawny little guy, you know. Um, but it's so, it's so nice to be in the springtime. It's so nice to be outside in warmer weather. Um, it's so nice to just finally get into the season. I don't know about you, but I just feel more active. It, does anybody get like seasonal depression? 
I do. Like, I, I grew up as a baseball kid. You know, I grew up in the summertime, and like, I love being outdoors. But then, like, when winter comes around and it's cold outside and it's dark earlier, for me, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. You know? And, but when springtime hits, I'm like, time to go back outside. Like, time to have more energy, time to be out there. And I just love that that's the season that we're falling into. Um, here at the Crossing Church, we actually have a lot of awesome things going on as well. And so um, if you're visiting with us, you are in a great place. Uh, you, are, you came at the right time. Um, the, the church here, we, we, we just love uh, what we do throughout the year. So I'm going to talk about what we are going to jump into today. So we are actually going to hit on a second part today of a sermon that Wes hit on last week. And what Wes was talking about last week was we were talking about what to do when the world doesn't like us. And, and we, we hit on this fact that the reality is, is that we are going through this theme, To Be Continued, in the book of Acts. And we're looking at the book of Acts, and we're looking at the men that chose to blaze a trail for what happened when Jesus died on the cross to start and establish this church here on earth and this kingdom and move and blaze a trail through the whole century. And that has trickled down to now our generation. And what we believe we're supposed to pull out of Scripture is that that, that situation that happened in Acts, that situation um, that happened with the Acts of the Apostles, that wasn't meant to just be a story that was cool to read about down the road in history. That was actually meant to be continued into a new generation, which now has been handed to us. And so now we have a responsibility to take what has happened in the book of Acts and carry it on for the next generation. You know, one of the things that I talked about the ministry, I had a lesson this past weekend, and one of the things that I had said is what we do right now as Christians in America is going to determine what the Christian faith looks like 100 years from now. And a lot of times we don't think like that, and we don't, we don't process that. But literally the Christian faith in 100 years is heavily dependent on how we choose to act and live and disciple today. And if that's the cause, if that's, if that's the reality then we need to have a seriousness about what it looks like we need to be doing in our lives right now. That we need to realize that the way that we live now is going to be multi-generational. It's going to affect the way that, we, that our peers view us. It's going to affect the way that our kids will be raised up one day. It's going to affect the way that our grandkids are going to be looked at because they're going to look at the model of disciples today and that's all they're going to have to live off of in the next generation. And so if that's the case then we need to get ourselves ready to understand that there's going to be persecution along the way. That there's going to be people that don't like us along the way. There's going to be people that are going to come after us because if you know anything about the American culture, you can see that. If you read any news bulletin, if you read any headline about the Christian faith and about people who have to stand up for their faith, persecution is coming to American Christianity. We are one of the most religiously free countries in the entire world. It only makes sense that we would start losing those freedoms like every other country. People are losing their jobs over these things. It's the things that Wes talked about last week. People are losing their jobs. People are having to be forced and pigeonholed to make hard decisions that contradict their faith. And that's not something that's going to stop. It's not something that's going to change. And so what Wes hit on last week, you know, our starting verse for this, for this series was Acts 2, 46 and 47. It says, day after day, they met as a group in the temple and they had their meals together in their homes, eating with glad and humble hearts, praising God and enjoying the good will of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. This was the honeymoon phase of the Christian faith. You know, this was the time after Jesus died on the cross that the mass started to, to, to accumulate. 
and things were nice and things were good. But as you read through Acts, that time was lived very short. Just like your marriage, right? You have this honeymoon phase and you guys are like, you just got married and you went through the lovey-dovey dating phase and then you get married and then you, you have your honeymoon and you're, you're away from the reality of life. You're on a vacation somewhere nice or whatever it may be. And you're like, oh, this is so pleasant and we're married to each other and we don't have to worry about things. And then you get back home and like reality starts seeping in and you're like, I live with another human now. <laughs> like, and I have, to, I have to figure out what their, like, like their work schedule is like and, and how it comp- complements mine. And now we got to share all this money together, you know, and I, I don't want to share my money and I want to do what I want to do. And, and then kids come in the picture. And then, so you look back at your honeymoon time, you're like, man, that was so nice. But then like life set in and it gets hard and we start fighting and, and, and it, it just becomes a reality that things are going to be a struggle to maintain, if they're, but they're so good. And the Christian faith is no different. There was a honeymoon phase, and then persecution sat in, and things started getting hard. But they realized what they had was so good that they were willing to fight for it. So what to do when the world doesn't like us anymore? This is a recap of what we talked about last week, this first part. And the first thing that you know, Wes talked about last week is that we have to clarify why and respond correctly. You have to clarify why and respond correctly to why the world doesn't like you anymore. Why does the world not like Christians? What, what is the problem? And he did a great job last week of talking about that. Because in 1 Peter 4, this is Peter talking you know, years down the road after he had experienced what was going on in the book of Acts. He says, count it a blessing when you suffer being a Christian. That shows that God's glorious spirit is with you. But you deserve to suffer if you're a murderer, a thief, a crook, or a busybody. Right? So, so we're trying to figure out, we got to clarify why people don't like us. And if you're disliked because you're a hypocrite, well, then there has to be a response there of repentance. You see, sometimes Christians get persecuted not because they're, they're always doing the right thing. It's because they're not doing the same things. I don't like you because you call yourself a Christian, but then I see what you do throughout the week and it doesn't line up. So yeah, I don't like you for that. That's hypocrisy. That's a lot of people in, in the world today choose to claim Christianity, choose to believe in God, and they say they trust God. But then when you look at their social media profiles, you look at what they choose to invest their lives in, you look at their lifestyle outside of church on Sunday, you say, that, that's not helping the faith. That's, that's hypocrisy. And Wes hit on the, the, the response there is to, to be repentant, to look at your life and say, okay, people don't like me because I'm being a hypocrite. I need to evaluate my heart and change my direction in life. But Peter also says, count it a blessing when you suffer for being a Christian. That shows that God is with you. So if you're disliked because of your consistency, if you're disliked because you are doing the right things, well, then your response needs to be persistence. There's got to be an encouragement to continue to do that. Look at what it says here in 1 Peter. He, he, he goes on a little bit later and he says, If you are suffering according to God's will, keep on doing what's right. Entrust yourself to the God who made you. He will never fail you. So he says, if people don't like you because you're doing the right stuff, keep doing that. Keep going. Because that's part of the faith. That's part of the reason that, that, that you need to do what you do. And look here in Acts 4. You know, this is something that they were doing in Acts 4. And I says, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed? <laughs> You know, think about that in the culture today. Like, am I getting in trouble because I'm being nice to others? Could you imagine that? Like a little kid like shares his toys at the playground and the teacher's like, hey, don't do that. You know, and the kid's like, 
Am I getting in trouble because I'm trying to be nice? You know, like that was the Christian faith at that time. They said, are, are we getting questioned because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. So there was a consistency that the, that the first century disciples knew we are doing the right thing. And people are going to hate us for it. But we have got to continue. We've got to persist. And so our second part of this lesson that we're going to dive in today is what is it going to take to persist? What is it going to take for us to continue if we've identified the hypocrisy and we're, and we're working that stuff out of our hearts and we're changing our lifestyles and now we're at the stage in our lives where we're like, I want to do right. I want to do good. I want to be somebody on this earth that contributes. I want to be somebody that has a purpose and I want to follow along with that purpose. There's going to need to be persistence because the, unlike, the unlikingness in American culture is not going to change. It will honestly probably get harder as the years go on. And if we're going to continue to be Christians who persist in that time, we need to know and evaluate what it's going to take in our lives to actually be able to persist. So today is a very applicable lesson today that you can walk away with some notes that we talk about um, that you can put into practice right away. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is I incorporate the essentials that I need to persist. Okay, There's a man named uh, Tertullian. He was an early scholar and a son of a Roman centurion. And this is something that he had documented during the first century um, about the way that Christians were viewed and the way that persecution was happening. This was his response to seeing that start happening. He says, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. For the seed of the church is the blood of the Christians. Every single drop of our blood springs up in some 30, some 60, and some hundredfold. What a bold statement. <laughs> like, think the way that that was said, like, keep mowing us down as Christians because we're going to keep growing right back up. Could you imagine to have that kind of like group of people that you're around rallying you? It's insane to think that he was, he was willing to be that bold with people with, with literally death on their, on their back, you know, on their door, knocking at their door. And this is his response that says, He's not like, all right, all right, we'll ease up. All right, all right, we'll stop, we'll stop talking so much. He says, keep, keep killing us. See what happens. See what happens. Keep, keep knocking us out and see what's going to happen to this faith. You see, in a moment here, we're going to take communion. But we, we've got to understand and we've got to remember why we can have a momentum to, to, to deal with persecution in a bold way. And the problem is, is I believe that American Christianity wants to blame culture for why the Christian faith isn't growing. We want to sit around and look at the American culture and say, well, now we got the politi we got politicians pressing down on us. And, and we've got all these different movements in the school systems and they got these agendas and, they, and they, want to, they just want to slam everything in our throats and say, Christians need to shut up. Christians need to stop talking. Christians, they can't have their way anymore. And we blame the American culture as to why Christianity is not growing. But you see, the problem is, is that what you find in Scripture 
is that they didn't blame the culture for their lack of growth. In fact, it was actually opposite that once persecution started happening, that's when the Christian faith grew to its highest points. That's when it was at its biggest point. That's when it had men like this saying, keep killing us, keep coming after us and see what happens. You understand that the, re- the reason that the book of Acts is, is the book of Acts and, and the mass conversions happened was because Jesus died, right? It's because they murdered the Son of God and put him on a cross and the Christian faith responded to that by growing tremendously. And then they followed suit with that in the book of Acts and you start seeing disciples start getting mowed down. And then you start seeing people getting converted place and place and place again and they start spreading out like rabbits. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, see what will happen when you continue to persecute us. Because they knew persecution should be happening and they were glad that it was happening because they remember what Jesus did on the cross and that motivated them in the first place to persist in the persecution. So we're going to take communion here in a second and I want you guys to remember that. I I want us to remember today that Persecution is a part of the Christian faith, but honestly, what happened to Jesus on the cross, the ultimate persecution, is what motivates the Christian faith. As we take communion, I just want you guys to think about that in your heads and in your hearts as we get ourselves ready to to look at how we can persist is, you know, Jesus was willing to lay down his life to set an example of how to live, but also to set a motivation that this life is just temporary here on earth. There's so, much, there's so many more things greater to fight for. We should not bow down to the culture. We should not bow down to the world and let them tell us how we need to run our lives. But God was willing to lay down his life so that we could fight for ours. And I pray as we take communion that you're willing today to, to look at your life and say, I'm willing to fight for my faith. I'm willing to fight for my faith just like so many others before me, so many other brothers and sisters in Christ did before me. So I'm going to say a prayer, we're going, to, we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to jump into this lesson on persistence, okay? Um, God, thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you so much for bringing him down. Um, and, and God, it, it's not fun to talk about, but I'm so grateful that he was able to die on a cross to give me an opportunity. It shouldn't have had to happen. It shouldn't have had to go that way. But God, you knew the plan from the beginning. You knew it. You knew it needed to happen. You knew it it had to happen so that we could have something so much greater in our lives. And God, I pray we don't take that thought for granted. We don't take that, that action for granted, but we can look at our lives and say, I want to persist in my faith because of what you were willing to do for me. And I want to persist in a way that others can be motivated and changed. But God, I need, I need to see that there's a blessing that can happen in me being motivated and changed in my life as well. So thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. And thank you for all of the people that have died for their faith before us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to talk about three things today. And this is simple stuff today, guys. You've heard this before. If, you, if you've ever been in a church, you've heard all three of these things that you need to be a part of. But I think sometimes we need to hear, we need to go back to the basics of what it looks like to be a, a disciple and to persist in hard times. Uh, so this isn't, this isn't like knowledge that's going to go above your head. It's simple stuff. And so the first thing that we need to know to incorporate the essentials is, number one, it's essential that I know my Bible. It's essential that I know my Bible. And the action word that's going to go along with that is study. 
you have to know the Word. You've got to know your Bible, okay? We're going to play a video here in a second once the media team gets us pulled up. But it's essential that you know the words and you believe the words so much so that it resides within you and that you nothing, nothing can penetrate what you already know, the knowledge that has already been given to you. Okay, you guys got that video ready? All right, go ahead and play that video for me real quick. So, uh, why you pick this class anyway? It's pretty hard. Oh, beautiful view. All right. All right. All right. Y'all shut up now. Now, last week, we talked about the physiology of the animal brain as it pertains to aggression. Now, is there anyone here that can tell me why most alligators are abnormally aggressive? I know the answer to this question. Raise your hand. Anybody? Anyone? Yes or you, sir? Mama says that alligators are ornery because they got all them teeth but no toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> Your mama said alligators are ornery because they got all them teeth and no toothbrush. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Anybody else? Hey, yes, a user. Alligators are aggressive because of an enlarged medulla oblongata. It's the sector of the brain which controls aggressive behavior. That is correct. The medulla oblongata. Mama the medulla oblongata is where anger, jealousy, and aggression come from. Now, is there anybody here can tell me where happiness comes from? No. Anyone? All right. Let's hear what Mama has to say on the subject. Mama say that happiness is from magic rays of sunshine that come down when you're feeling blue. <laughs> well, folks, Mama's wrong again. <laughs> no, Colonel Sanders, you're wrong. Mama's right. All right. Mama's right. Mama's right. Something wrong with his medulla oblongata. <laughs> You see, I was thinking, how can I fit the water boy into a sermon one day? And it finally happened. I was able to make it work, right? So, he, now, now, now here's how I, I bring it together, okay? We have to know our Bible. We've got to understand it because the world around us is going to tell us that we're wrong. This is your mama. <laughs> Mama's never wrong, all right? But a lot of us don't know our mama. We don't know the word, and we let the culture around us talk to us like Colonel Sanders, right? And they say, that's not right. This is the way the world works. That's not right. But when we start realizing, we read our Bible, and we say, but my God says, this is how it works. But my God says that this is the reality of where I'm at in life. The world's going to say, nope, that's not how it works. Let's look at some science. Let's look at some theories. Let's, look at, let's just look at human nature overspans. And they start changing things. And sometimes we, we don't want to stick to our guns. Sometimes we don't want to 
let it reside within us and we change our thoughts and we change what we think is right. And sometimes we just need to be like the water boy. (laughs) Sometimes we got to look at our lives and we got to be able to say, I know the truth and I know it's right and I'm going to live by it. Even if everyone else around me thinks I'm crazy. Even if everyone else around me has no clue of what I believe my entire life, what God has told me is truth and I need to live by it and stand by it despite the culture. Period. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have in society is that we just don't know the Bible enough so we have our own views based on what everybody else tells us. But the first century did not get that because they knew the Bible. They knew in Acts, in Acts 3.24, it says, starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. What the church was going through in the book of Acts had already been talked about and they knew it was going to happen. They didn't sit around on their hands being like, why are we getting persecuted? Why is all this bad stuff happening to us? They already knew it was going to happen. Acts 4.11, for Jesus is the one referred to in scriptures where it says the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. They knew Jesus was going to come. In the Old Testament, the prophecies prophesied about these specific things coming to fruition and it had finally arrived. And the disciples lived by God's words. They did not change their trajectory. Acts 4.25-20, it says you spoke long ago. They're talking about the Bible. They're talking about the Old, the Old Testament, for, which to them was the Bible. You spoke long ago through the, by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, Whom you anointed, but everything they did was determined beforehand in your will. You see, the world around us is just changing, and they keep changing, and they keep trying to put things into place to to gain power or to gain stability or to gain control or to gain A, B, and C. And the first century understood this. They said, you guys are wasting all this time trying to make all these things happen and come up against us. But man, we already knew this was going to happen. This was already determined way before your time. We knew that this is the world that we were going to have to live in one day. We weren't going to live in Acts 2 for the rest of our lives. We weren't going to live in, 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 in being able to spend time together and, and everybody was joyful and everybody there wasn't any persecution and, and it was nice and it was growing. They knew at some point, because they knew Scripture, the times were going to get tough. You know, I think a lot of times when people choose to follow the Christian faith and they study the Bible, they spend more time trying to figure out what God can do for them and they look at the blessings and they don't necessarily understand and evaluate the cost that comes with those blessings. They don't evaluate that there is going to be persecution that comes along with it. They don't evaluate that there's going to be hard times. They don't evaluate that the culture is literally going to go against them most of their life. John 15, 18 says, if you find that what the, the world despises you, remember, see, they want them to look back, remember that before it despised you, it first despised me. 
You see, we, we, we have a model of what it looks like to be an authentic Christian. We have a model of a man who was literally God. And he says, remember, if this is what you want to follow, if this is what you want to be like, remember, the world hated me first. So what are they going to do with you? They treated me this way. How do you think they're going to treat you? We got to know that's what the Bible says. Matthew 5, 11 through 12. When you are reveled and persecuted and lied about because you are my followers, wonderful. You know, now we get a different context here because now we're talking about persecution and there's an emotion that goes along with that. But the emotion that the first century tells us that we need to deal with is not the emotion that we usually think about when we think about persecution and anger and, and, and being sad by, by the things that happen. So be happy about it. Be very glad for a tremendous reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted too. So many references that they give the disciples in Acts and as they start converting more people, there, there, is, a, there is just a consistency that they are telling this new congregation of disciples as they're converting people. They keep on saying, remember, Jesus was persecuted. Remember, these things are going to maybe happen to you too. Remember, prophets, this happened to them too. But we got to be happy about it. We got to rejoice in it. We got to know that because it's putting the prophecies in effect. You know, I don't think that the Christian faith would have spread as, as fast as it did if there wasn't persecution. Could you imagine? You know, if it was just like Acts 2 and it like stayed like that and like everybody was happy and they were like, hey, like this is nice, like everybody's friends with everybody. That's whenever I feel like if, in my head I'd been like, all right, yeah, this is cool. Like this is a cool movement. Like I don't need to go anywhere because everybody's just going to say yes to the faith. And so comfortability could set in. This is nice. I'm not being pushed out of my comfort zones because everything I'm doing aligns with what my God wants me to do. And so now I can... I can get, get married, settle down, get a house, and everybody around me is going to re, be rejoicing in, in my lifestyle because this is, this is my life. That was never talked about in the prophecies. That was never pushed in, in, in the Old Testament. They said, that something's coming, and you've got to be ready for it. And I think that's what drove the faith was the persecutions. And I think in American culture, we get this idea that it should look like the opposite. We get an American culture idea of Christianity that says Christianity is supposed to be enjoyable for everyone. The world is supposed to love that I'm a Christian. Whenever I say, hey, I get baptized, the people in my life are supposed to say, yes, good for you. I'm so proud of you. I got your back no matter what. You start telling people that you're a Christian in businesses and in schools and like, great, this, I, I love that that's something that you're doing with your life. That's how we feel like Christianity should be presented in the culture. And that's why so many people jump on board is because that's the response that they think they're going to get. But once they're met with resistance, once they're met with persecution, well, now we, now we start singling out the real ones from the fake ones. We start singling out who really is a disciple and is going to push through and who is just here for the good stuff until it got bad.
2 Timothy 3.12 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Maybe that's the verse we should start with when we start studying the Bible with people. <laughs> right? Hey, let's sit down and study the Bible. You don't know anything about Christianity? Let me show you a verse real fast. 2 Timothy 3.12. You still want to keep going? <laughs> like, maybe that's where we should start with people. Like, this, this, this is going to happen to you. But it's because it's what the Bible says. In 1 Peter 4.12, he writes about this even later. He says, don't be surprised when you experience your trial by fire. It is not something strange and unusual, but it's something you should rejoice in. If anyone condemns you for following Jesus as the anointed one, consider yourself blessed. The glorious spirit of God rests on you. You see, you got to know your Bible. You got to know what it says. There's so many Christians that don't know this part of the Bible. And then they get all flustered and they get all upset and they choose to leave a faith that they didn't really understand in the first place. But if you're really going to follow God, if you're really going to want a life that's blessed and completely changed, you've got to know that he says that there's going to be persecution in this life for it to be a complete faith. Period. It's going to happen. Okay? So it's essential that we, we know our Bible, we get in our Word, so we know what to expect in this life. Secondly, it's essential that I connect with believers. It's essential that I connect with believers. The action word here, sharing. And I, had, I had some talks this weekend at the men's retreat with some guys. They kind of pulled me aside and talked about just kind of where they're at in life. And one of the things that you know, continues to, to get brought up, and it's not even just with men, but it's just people in general, is church hurt, right? People get burned by others in the church because of exactly what we just talked about, the hypocrisy. We have, we have Christians that call themselves Christians, but actually they just show up to church, and then their lives are completely different. And people invest in those friends, and they build trust. And then when persecution comes or hard times hit, people flake, and they leave and they bail. And what that leaves for the people who want a relationship with God is trust issues. I don't want to trust people anymore. I've tried that. So I'm just going to do the God thing by myself. And, and, and we start to believe this lie that we can be a Christian and be isolated. That we can, we can, we can live in persecution by ourselves because it's us against the world one-on-one. -on -one. But the challenge I have to you guys today, because of the reality of the scriptures, is you can't read very far in scripture and find that you can have a complete faith and trust in God if you don't trust his people. It doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. God didn't send people down to help us just for us to push them aside because we've been hurt by something else in the past. But we want to justify the pain and the persecution and, and the trust issues. And, and the way I think about it is like, oh, so, so it's okay if, if people outside of the church persecute you. But when people in the church persecute you, now you want to act a little different? Now you want to believe that this thing isn't real anymore? Who persecuted Jesus more than anyone? The Pharisees. The religious leaders. 
the people who were supposed to have his back. Right? And we sit here and we blame the church for the reason why we have trust issues with other people when the reality is, is that it doesn't matter if you show up in a church body or not, persecution is going to come from hypocrites or the world. Which one's better? They both suck, <laughs> right? Trust issues are going to happen. Which one would you rather? Pick your poison. Die by people outside the church or die by people inside the church. Neither one of them is fun. But they're both going to happen. I've used that excuse for years. I was burned in a church situation when I first came into faith. The people, the guy that baptized me, the, the relationships that I was in, I thought I had something real. And over time, I looked through scripture and, and there were some issues that had happened. And long story short, I decided that the church that I was a part of, I didn't feel like the direction that they were going in was something that aligned with the scriptures and the convictions that I had. And instead of there being an encouragement and, and, a, and a support, there, there was a betrayal and a turning of backs. And every single person that had studied scripture with me, all of my closest friends at that time, they turned their backs on me. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it is incredibly hard to continue to do something by yourself. It's incredibly hard to fight for the right things when everybody who's taught you the right things are no longer doing the right things. And I use that excuse for years as to why I don't want to get close with people, especially in the church. You know, I went to a seminar a couple weeks ago in Indianapolis, and I, and I, and I was in a room with a, with a ton of church leaders, ministers, pastors, preachers of their own congregations, hundreds of them. And one of the things that was, was talked about whenever they pulled themselves into these little groups, and I was talking with this pocket of eight or ten different ministers, we were talking about relationships and, and, being, and being deep friends with people in our church. And I kid you not, more than one person had said, what I was taught at seminary, at Bible school, what I was taught was you don't get too close to your congregation. You don't make it personal because you know at some point, at any point in time, they may not like the way you preach. They may not like your, your trajectory or you may find a different job in a different church. So you don't make it personal. You don't get too close. And I was baffled by that. But that's the reality that happens in these old ministers that have had this old teachings and trainings. That they make it a business and it's not relational. But then the problem is, is that they go into churches and they preach to their people to be relational. And how in the world are you supposed to build a church and give them instructions on things that you're not willing to do yourself? And I've been convicted the last couple of weeks thinking about that because I have for so many years kept people at arm's length. And been like, I can lead people. But that doesn't mean i got to trust them. You know what I'm saying? I can be in the same room with people. I can hang out with people. But that doesn't mean i got to deeply invest my life and trust them to the point that maybe I could get hurt again. I can separate the two. But we find out in the book of Acts that that can't be how it happens. We have to connect with believers. Acts 4.23, Peter and John left the meeting and went to their own group. They told the group everything that the priests and Jewish leaders had said to them. They connected. 
They talked about things. They brought things to life. They shared in, in their faith. Galatians 6, 2, share each other's troubles and problems. And so obey the Lord's command. Okay, now it's not just a good thing to do as a Christian faith, but it is a part of the commandments of Christ. Are you saying it's a sin if you don't connect with other Christians? Yes, I am. If you choose to live your life isolated and say, I refuse to get deep with other people for the glory of God, you are sinning against your God. Period. We cannot have this relationship with God and isolate ourselves on this earth and think that we're doing the right thing. We have to have other people in our lives. We have to share in those troubles, share in those burdens. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, brothers and sisters, make sure that none of you have a sinful heart. He's, he's talking about specific people, right? You don't make sure you don't have a sinful heart. How does that happen? Don't let an unbelieving heart turn you away. Don't let other people turn you away. So how do we do it then? Verse 13, but build one another up every day. He says, have community. Do it as long as there is still time. Then none of you will become stubborn. You won't be fooled by sin's tricks. To be healthy in your relationship with God, you have to have other people in there to hold you accountable, to give you instruction, to share in your burdens, to give you encouragement, to build each other up because the culture around us is not going to stop. It's not. And if you want to persist in your relationship with God and you want to make it go long lasting, you have got to bring people in so that the culture doesn't take you out. It's just the way it's got to be. Acts 4, 32 and 33, all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. Do you share your lives with one another? Now, I asked this question at, at the men's retreat and it's something actually, we we're going through a book here at the Crossing Church called How to Worship a King. It's a great book. Um, we have some actually in our bookstore if you guys would like to read along with us. But um, one of the questions that I asked in my men's group was, guys, are we, are we doing ministry together or are we doing life together? Because there's a problem if we're just doing ministry together. If we're just spending our time hanging out on Sundays, going to our small group on Wednesdays, and we say we're doing ministry, the reality is, biblically, we're not really doing ministry. We're just hanging out. But I want to get us to a point where we can do life together, that we can meet every day building each other up, that we can invest in each other's lives because that's real ministry. And when you do it that way, the world will look at you and still hate you. But every once in a while, you're going to get that guy or that girl that's going to be like, what's so different about that group? Why are they still happy even though the world sucks? <laughs> like, well, the culture is so terrible right now, but they're, they're still feeling like their life is good. They're still feeling like there's a lot. And it's going to be attractive to people. And I encourage my men. I said, guys, we've got to do life together. And that's my encouragement and my challenge to this, this congregation do you guys do life together when you leave on Sunday mornings? Do, do you invest in one another? Do you share? Do you find people in your life that you can just do life? Do you have men or women in your life that you share in, with the kids and, the, and, they, and they spend time together and you guys cook meals and you guys sit down at tables together? Or do you just make it a cordial, we'll see you next Sunday? 
Which one is it? The first century understood what was needed to persist. If we isolate ourselves, the world's going to pull us out and say, hey, you don't need to invest in the church. You got so many things through this week. Your, your kids got practices. You got work. You got, this, you got this A, B, and C. And they start, the culture pulls us out. And we believe that we can do it by ourselves. But it's just not true. So we have to persist in our relationships with one another. And then lastly, it's essential that I ask God to strengthen me. You see, guys, these weren't rocket science answers. <laughs> you know, like, these, these, this, isn't, this isn't anything new. To ask God to strengthen us, the, the action word there is prayer. We literally went through today that we need to study, we need to share, and we need to pray. We know, we know this stuff. But are we doing it the way that the first century did in the middle of persecution? I have to ask God to strengthen me. Awesome spot here. Look at what they said in Acts 4.24. It says, When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. You see, sometimes we, we forget the power of our God. We forget the power of prayer. We forget that this dude literally created everything. He's got the power to create everything, so he should have the power to do anything that we're struggling with. And we have to ask God if we're going to persist in this life because it's so hard. We've, there, guys, I can be prideful at times. I'm, I'm, it's just natural for me to be like that. But there are going to be some things in life that you cannot do by yourself. In your human nature, the way that you were created, there are going to be some things that you are incapable of doing as much as you try. And we fight for those things. I fight as hard as I can to change something in my life and say, I don't need help. I can just fix it. But the problem is, is that we, we, we will never be able to fix things out of our own strengths because we're the ones that broke them in the first place out of our own weakness. Right? You want to know why your marriage sucks? It's not anybody else's fault but your own, right? It's, it's, it's one of two people, and more times than not, it's usually both of them. <laughs> you know, like... That's just what happens. You want to know why your relationship sucks with your kids? Are we going to blame the world for those, those issues? You want to know why you ain't got no money all the time? Somebody breaking into your house, taking all your money? <laughs> like, you want to know why you're an addict and you struggle with those things? Is somebody sticking a needle in your arm? You know, we can go down the line and blame anybody and everybody for our problems, but the reality is that in our own human nature, our own weaknesses, we mess up. And it's just going to be a part of life. But our arrogance kicks in to make us believe that we are supposed to be the ones that are to fix those things by ourselves. And that's where Jesus comes in and says, no, no, no. You really want to get out of that addiction? You really want to fix your marriage? You really want to... You really want to rebuild the relationships that you have with your kids. You really want to get yourself in a financially disciplined state. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. But come to me. 
Come to the source of strength. Come to the creator of heaven and earth and ask for his aid. And see what he can do with it. If we had more people praying like that, man, what kind of lives would we have? What kind of marriages would we have? What kind of kids would be getting raised up? What kind of situations would we have in our lives if we could have that kind of prayer life going on? Acts 4, 29-31, they talk about it again. It says, And now, O Lord, hear their threats. Now he's addressing the persecutions. And then once again, when the world sucks and comes after us and hits us hard and starts challenging the Christian faith, do we try to fix it ourselves and fight fire with fire? What did they do? God, hear their threats. Hear the persecution that's coming against your people. And what would the common sense person do? Right? They would say, they would ask for what? Protection, maybe? For them to stop doing it, maybe? God, hear the persecutions and just stop it. That's, that's the logical thing to say, right? But they knew their Bible. They studied scriptures. So they knew what to pray for. Sometimes we don't know what to pray for because we don't know what the Bible is going to say about what our lives are at and what we need. We pray for the hurting to stop. We pray for their things to be, for us to be taken out of certain worlds and contexts. They knew their scripture, so they knew what to pray for. So they don't pray for those things. It says, Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness to preach your word. They don't pray for things to get taken away. They don't pray for the hurting to stop. They pray for God to give them the boldness to complete the mission. They pray for God to come in and give them that boldness. Stretch out your hand in healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your servant. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. You see, sometimes, guys, we pray for the wrong things. We pray for things to be fixed. We pray for things to be taken away. We pray for the hurting to stop. But if you know your Bible, you know that's not the right prayer to pray. God says that these things are going to happen. We see it time and time again. And God says, listen, it's time for you guys to start praying for the things that are going to be followed in my will. And when you can finally align your life with an understanding of what God wants to do with your life, your prayer life will change. Mine has started to change tremendously. I've gotten caught up in that idea. I, you know, guys, if you don't know about me, I, I grew up very poor. I grew up in an environment, in a house that we didn't have a lot of money. I grew up in an environment that there was multiple times that we didn't have hot water. And so we would have to put pots and pans of water on our stovetop to, to heat up, to put into our tub. We didn't have a shower head. So we'd take baths, lukewarm baths, because of how hot the water would get. And I remember those moments as a kid, I didn't really get like that this was like a bad situation. And as I grew up, I did start to realize through the context of my friends, and in the situations that my kids and my friends were in, that I was like, this kind of sucks. 
And as I grew older and older, and my dad wasn't in the picture, and I started seeing friends with dads, I started seeing certain things in my life, and I looked at my life and said, my life sucks. I don't want a life like this when I get older. I want a marriage. I don't want to have to worry about divorce. I don't want to worry about any of these things. I want to give my family a good life. And even as I became a disciple, I still stood by those principles. I want to give my, I want to give my family a good life. So I started praying for a wife. I started praying for kids. I started praying for a financial stability. And I've been blessed with some of those things. But as I start reading through this stuff, and I've been convicted these last couple weeks and last couple months and getting this stuff more deeply, is that the problem that I have with my prayer life is I still have not fully comprehended the complete purpose that God has for my life. And the more that I read about the first century disciples, and the more I read about the book of Acts, I realize that my prayer life needs to start changing because my problem was that I believed that the things that God needed to protect me from were things that I could still be a Christian in. You see, I hope that my kids don't have to go through the same struggles I did with heating up water and doing homework by candlelight. Like, I hope that those things, but you best believe that if that did happen, if I lost all my money, if I lost all those things, I would still teach my kids how to be disciples. You know, the things that I was praying about to make my family strong in the faith were not the things I should have been praying about to make them strong in the faith. I was praying for protection and all this worldly stuff and all these, and all these things that would just kind of set them up for success. And I started to realize more, man, that ain't setting them up for nothing but comfort. So I started to pray more about boldness for my family. That the, the way they talk to their friends at school will be in truth. That the hardships that we're going to encounter and endure as a family to give me the strength to continue to be a father that pushes that rather than pulls them from that to protect them. I want to push my kids into the fight and not pull them to protect them from the fight. And I think that the first century disciples understood that. And if you guys can get on board with that as well and look at your life and say, God, am, am I praying that you will pull me from the fight and protect me? Or am I praying that you will push me and strengthen me to join the front lines of this fight and bless me because of it? And so today, guys, like what I talked about, these three traits are nothing new to the Christian faith. I didn't bring some newfound theology to us that maybe we've never heard of before. But maybe in the way that we've been applying these three things has made it very hard for us to want to persist in the culture that's attacking us right now. And so my challenge to you guys is to pull out this communication card in your guys' bulletin and give yourself an opportunity to evaluate where you're at in your faith. This cardstock piece of paper can give you an opportunity to look at your life and say, God, I want to persist, but... And it's up to you to fill in that blank. What is the thing that is holding you back from persisting in the way that God has called you to? Is it that you don't know your Bible and you don't really know what's expected of you as a disciple? Maybe you don't know God and you're trying to figure out if this is something you want to do. Maybe indicate that you'd like to do a Bible study and start getting into God's word and looking at what it's going to be, what it's going to take to have a relationship with God and the way he wants you to. 
Maybe you just don't have community. And you're looking at that idea and being like, I just, I don't have that, that whole do life together thing. Maybe I don't have people in my life. Indicate you want to know about our small groups. And we can get you plugged into some people that are trying to do life together. Right? Or maybe there's just some kind of struggle that you just, you, you, on your own, you cannot do. Indicate in that prayer section. Look at that, look at that part in your life and say, God, I don't, I know on my own will, I do not have the strength to fix this. I need your power. I need your healing. I need, I need your help. And we keep those confidential and we'll get somebody that can plug in with you and talk and share about those prayer things. We have prayer, prayer warriors, you know, in our church that sit, sit and they pray about these issues and they look at their lives and say, God, please help these people. Please give them the strength. But I challenge you, don't pray about things that are going to shelter you from the persecutions. Pray in a way that you've never prayed before. Pray in a way that's going to give you the boldness to thrive through the persecution, not to shelter you from it. And I pray that everyone will take this opportunity to fill out this card to just look at our lives and say, man, I want to persist, but I need the help. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to sing a song, and that's going to give you guys some time to fill out this communication card. And then um, the worship team will kind of give you some further instructions after that. But I'm excited that you guys are here today. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very encouraged by our congregation. And, and take advantage of those Mother Day's uh, invites to invite uh, your friends. And, you know, I, I want to see what God can do with a church that takes their relationship with God seriously. It would be so cool to see how we can move through a, a community here in Collinsville, on our college campuses, on, on our high schools and things like that. Um, if, we're, if we're being disciples, men and women, that are willing to look at our lives and evaluate what the cost is going to take and how we can persist in persecution because it's coming. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about persecution. Um, it's not something that we like to talk about. It's not something that we want to talk about, but it's not something we can avoid either, God. And so, God, I pray that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hurts, in the midst of habits, in the midst of all these addictions and hang-ups and, and the things that we cannot do on our own, Lord, that we know we need you, we need your people, and we need your word. And I pray that we can do the best we can to, to activate all three of those and, and utilize them in this life so we can persist and say at the end of the road that we lived a faithful life um, to the best of our abilities, Lord. So thank you again for your son, and thank you again for this group of people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.